Johnny, thanks for coming to the Founders Lounge. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on. So you built your first company and sold it for seven figures after, I think, just about two years or so, which is quite impressive in itself. So I have a lot of questions around that. And yeah. uh, obviously now building your second company, uh, doing some advising on the side, some angel investing. So a lot of interesting topics that we can dive into. But um, as I usually say, let's just start at the beginning. Um, so the first company that you built, can you tell us a little bit more about what it was to set the stage, sure. to set the context? So the business was called Pouch, P-O-U-C-H, and it was a browser extension that you installed and it automatically found all the best voucher codes on the internet and presented them to you at the checkout page. Um, we didn't come up with it. We saw it in India first, actually. And then we did a bit of research and saw it was doing really well in America and there was no one doing it in the UK. But now there are like, hundreds of copycats each market has their own, own version most markets have two or three versions they're really like fantastic tools um and we you know, call it luck call it just going with something we you know we were the first in the uk to to launch a browser extension like this and it wasn't my idea it was my friend from school ben corrigan he worked in affiliate marketing technology sales for about four years and the company he worked for did shopping cart abandonment technology. Basically, you installed that pixel on your website and it would track the mouse movements and let you know when you're about to abandon the cart. And he was a salesperson doing like selling in this tech to retailers. And the issue was like selling tech, getting integrations, getting the tech team to prioritize it. He was like, if we can do the same thing, but B2C, so get people to install something that you know does the same thing, then we can build a pretty big business. And that was the idea from Pouch at the beginning. You know, serve the best voucher codes, um, optimize checkouts, help people save money, like pretty true to the vision throughout the whole journey. And yeah, we sold it about two years after we formally started it, right? No, no ideas mm -hmm. happened overnight. Um, we started talking about it in like 2015, two years before the product even went live, you know, over beers and whatever it may be. And then it took a long time for things to kind of line up. But at the start of 2017, I left and we went full-time on Pouch. And then we exited the business at the start of 2019. And so, you know, some people say, wow, amazing. And sometimes it's like, could we gone, gone a bit longer? We were really young. We were like 25 to 27 doing it. We had never run a business before of any type. So the fact that we managed to build something that people wanted and then sell it was pretty unbelievable, really. Like, um, you know, there's actually very few exits in startup line, most people make their money via secondaries and things like that to actually have sold a company is um, something I didn't quite appreciate at the time, but very grateful to have gone through that experience. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. And yeah, you can still download the product. I'm not involved at all anymore, but joinpouch.com, it's still a really, really brilliant tool. One thing I, I'll point out that I appreciate, you said we didn't come up with the idea, which I, I think there are a lot of people who didn't actually say it out loud, but I think it happens very, very, very often. I actually talk mm. about it quite often because there's a lot of stuff that happens. And especially I think the US and China are two interesting examples because there's a lot of innovation that happens there that we can and should bring to Europe and to other markets, right? And obviously sure. there are some people that are doing that very openly. Uh, rocket, like rocket. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how, yeah. I don't know how they're doing these days. I actually heard so, of them in Funny a while. story that you mentioned there, because the company that bought Pouch was founded under like Rocket's umbrella. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So they were looking at voucher code websites doing well in the US mm -hmm. and started their own version in Germany. And now this company, Global Savings Group, is the largest like deal and voucher platform. They've got loads of different properties in, in Europe. They're like a massive, you know, almost billion dollar valuation business. Like definitely one of the standout success stories in Europe. Yeah, exactly. So that, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So yeah, Rocket Internet, for those who don't know, is one of those examples. They, they literally, the whole model is they just observe what's working i think primarily in the us and then they replicate yeah. that in europe i think middle east and africa and they yeah. you know they clone essentially um uber or airbnb or like all those kind of big big some of the biggest startups in in the us i think like hello fresh um i don't think it was hello fresh specifically but definitely uh they took that dc grocery model and, mm. uh, and made it their own they copied like blue apron and what's interesting yeah, is, yeah, you know, yeah. those companies in America have collapsed, but in Europe, they're doing really well. 
Oh, that's actually interesting. Yeah, I I didn't I didn't realize. That's interesting. So yeah, their model obviously works. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's pros and cons to it, but the general idea is I don't think you know there's this whole thing around entrepreneurship. Like you need to be very very innovative. You need to create something that never existed before. And I just think that that's so wrong. No, that it's not wrong. It's just very um, confusing and inaccurate because all the startups that you see in the media and a lot of the stories they're being told, it's like, yeah, you need to you know, invent something completely new, right? right? And we look at Elon no. Musk, he's creating SpaceX and Tesla and that kind of stuff. But the reality is- I also is, think it holds <laughs> back a lot of founders like themselves yeah. because I, I, like, I, I talk about this openly, neither of the businesses I've started have been my idea. Mm. Like Pouch wasn't my idea. It was my friends. Mm. Yasso wasn't my idea. It was two guys I met at a conference and we built a, you know, a working relationship with. And I think a lot of people get inertia thinking, I don't have an idea. I don't have an idea. Like I've had lots of ideas. Don't get me wrong, but I've just never thought they were good enough. And yeah. I know my skill set is one where I want to have a co-founder or, or two. Both my businesses have been, you know, a three co-founder team because that's the balance of responsibility I uh, I, I think is best. Um, but no, you don't need your own idea, but you need to know what your skill set is. You need to know what your edge is. You need to know what you can bring to the table. So when you meet someone that's, you know, an amazing developer with an idea, you can say, I can handle all of this. This is what I bring to the table. Here's my track record. Um, you take care of all of that and, and let's do this thing together. Hmm. there's a book that's been recommended to me probably more often than any other it has a funny title uh how to how to get rich by felix dennis and he was a multi multi-millionaire well i i think he founded felix publishing which was a like eight hundred thousand pound company i think in the end um very successful guy financially right built a literally an empire of publishing companies and he wrote a book on how to start a business or how to run and you know build a big business and one of the things that he says in the book that really stuck with me was you don't need to have a single good idea in your life if you are just talking to people and have and keep your eyes open and if you just become good at executing you're going to be much 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 more successful than the person who has 100 ideas right 100% and um yeah it's really it's the execution that's the hard one often there, there's a lot yeah. of ideas out there. But. It's also the most painful to do and it's the least sexy. Like mm. no one wants to, you know, founder, I, I'm a big proponent of founder culture in general. I think it is really encouraging for people to go and do their own things and at least try it. Um, but you know, no one shows you the 10,000 emails you have to send to get investment. And that's not like mm. an exaggeration when we did our seed round for Yasso, my second business. That's 800, we spoke to 800 angels. 150 plus VCs uh, and you can imagine that's like almost a thousand people all the conversations you're having back and forth you're literally sending 10,000 emails to get a funding round closed no one wants to think that it's that hard they think they can walk pitch I've got an idea and, and, and off we go it's just it's just never the case yeah how many no's you get and uh, it, and it, it almost kind of sounds sexy when you talk about it it's like well yeah you, you know you got over all those rejections and uh you came out stronger, but it's really hard when you're going through those rejections. You're like, sure. maybe my idea sucks. Maybe, <laughs> maybe this is not so good. So I, I think actually when it comes to, I don't think that there are, okay, no, there are bad ideas. I'm not getting wrong. However, if you've like conceptualized something, tested it and have a few people liking it, that are completely outside of your circle. I think it's much more about approach and just like resilience to the nose. Because when most people say, I don't know your idea, I don't like your idea, or it's no. We had this with raising for the second business. So I'll come on to like what that is and why it was the case. They're not really saying no. What they're saying is, I'm not smart enough to assess this correctly, but I'm not going to tell you I don't think I'm smart enough. So I'm just going to pass because that's the easiest thing to do. Mm. And subsequently, that's after coming back mm. and speaking to these investors, it's exactly what they said. You were like, I just don't have the skills to evaluate this. So it's just easier to say no. But they're never going to say like, I don't know enough about it because it makes them seem stupid and everyone needs yeah. to keep facing this game. Yeah, that's true. And obviously you spent so much more time thinking about it, researching it, testing it, right? The investor has a quick look at it basically and then they understand as much as they do. And yeah, it's, it's easy to overemphasize that feedback you get from investors because you, you feel like they're experienced. But yeah, at the same time, 
nobody thought about it as much as you did, right? Exactly. Um, so when you talk about pouch, what were those first steps? You mentioned, you know, testing now and um, how did you guys start actually? How did you guys... Um... All right, before we continue, I want to take a second to talk about our sponsor. I've always been saying that one of the best ways to learn about business is by working closely with a smart and successful entrepreneur. And this might be your opportunity. Our sponsor is a company called JudgeMe. JudgeMe is a Shopify product review plugin, and they're the number one plugin on Shopify. They're literally, if you look at the Shopify app store, they're in the first spot. They're bootstrapped and they managed to outcompete other companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars by just being smarter and building a better product. They were started by PJ, who was also a guest on the Founders Lounge, episode 54, so I recommend you to check it out. They recently moved their headquarters to London and they're looking for smart people to join them. They're looking for product managers, engineers, and they're looking to fill other roles as well. So check out careers.judge.me and see if you find any role that you like and apply. So that's careers.judge.me. Now, enjoy the rest of the episode. So, Ben Ben had the idea, came to me, and was like, great, let's pursue this. Well, neither of us know how to build, uh, know how to write code or, or build a tech product. We need to find uh, a developer of some kind. So, we went to look at some like development agencies, but we didn't have any money really to spend like 10 grand to get to an MVP. Mm. It just We just didn't have the capital to do that. And then we found some freelancers, and we thought, okay, what's the minimum viable product that we need here? And again, um, couldn't find anyone. And then I think this comes to like being open and talking about your ideas. Just on the tube home, and I bumped into a friend from school. And I, she said, how are you? And rather than being very British and saying, yeah, I'm great, I told her the truth, which was, oh, I'm actually really frustrated. We've got what we think is a great idea. We need someone to, to, to build this. She says, that's so funny. I work at a development agency, like a digital agency. One of my developers has said he's trying to work on his own side project. I should introduce you. But in London, this guy lived a five-minute walk away from me. Like, <laughs> just crazy. And his name was Vic, Vic Ram. He became our third equal co-founder. And when we met him, you know, we initially wanted to pay him to a small amount to build this. And on, the, I think, the third meeting, I said to him, look, I don't want to pay you anymore. I want you to become our full third co-founder. Mm-hmm. And he said, good, I'm glad you said that, because actually I was going to say no in this meeting unless you offered me the co-founder role. So, you know, the the stars were aligned in terms of motivation nice. and what we wanted. So then we had our third co-founder. Um, we had Vic and we built the product throughout 2016 and launched it um, in September 2016 up when we got onto this accelerator program called Mass Challenge. It's big in America. It doesn't exist in the UK anymore. They never took equity. It was more like a like ESG social good accelerator. But we got free office space and mentoring for like, three months so it was, it was good for us um launched the product raised one hundred and thirteen thousand pounds in angel funding mainly from one angel that a german guy that vic's kid went to school with him and like met him in the car park and <laughs> had it like struck it off so you just never know where where you know you're going to meet people yeah. it's a crazy story then um with that we could pay for servers we could start doing some initial marketing tests all went pretty poorly to be honest but we the product was quite novel and we got in a lot of i'll say the money saving press mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah no so that, on, yeah. okay so that gave us um so we got into a lot of the, the money saving press and that got us some initial interest and then we got contacted by the bbc saying do you want to go on dragons then mm-hmm. and i say we built and sold a company of 15 minutes of tv like, and I, I, I truly say this, yeah. like we would have been nowhere without it. We, um, we had a finance and op skills, we had sales skills, we had technical skills, but we actually didn't have the core skill we needed, which was someone that knew um, digital marketing really well. Like we just didn't have that skill set. And we paid some agencies to try and help us, but they're all terrible. Like no one, they, they never worked with the browser extension before. Like we got taken for an absolute ride. So the Dragon's Den experience was amazing. Um, we went through so the how whole was that? T- tell a little bit more about that. So obviously that's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, it was, it was a massive deal. So what happens is uh, you do an application process and because we got scouted because uh, we were in Forbes, some like random article, um, 
we got scouted, we got accelerated through the process. And you have an interview, you have a phone call, and then you go and do like a screen test in White City in, in London where BBC's office is. And then they say, great, you're going to be on the show. Um, all of the application happened in February, March. And then we recorded the episode in May. And the entire year just became about like doing well on Dragon's Den and then uh-huh. and then capitalizing on the the launch. So when I say doing well on Dragon's Den, we kind of stopped all spending and said, if we nail this, we will succeed. If we don't, we're dead in the water. So we've got to do everything we can. We hired pitch coaches. We went to like every smart person we know to get absolutely drilled on what can happen in the room to make sure that we knew the numbers and, and, and nothing could go wrong. Yeah, we pitched on, I remember it well, in Manchester on May 7th, 2017. And we got five offers. So every single dragon wanted to invest, which was which at the crazy. time, yeah. Like now it happens quite a lot. But at the time we were only the third, in 15 years, we were the third time this has happened. Oh, wow. And one of the crew came up to us afterwards and said, that's the best pitch I've ever seen. Um, so... You know, we went to the green room after and we were just like buzzing. Like we just couldn't believe how well it had gone. And you know, you're going to be the big slot. And then it was a case of like, well, we, we just have to wait. So we recorded in May and the series kicks off in August, but we could have been on TV anytime from August through to October or, just, yeah. or, or November. Yeah. So it was kind of tools down waiting, but we quite quickly got told we were going to be the opening episode of the show. And it was a case of, right, what do we need to do technically-wise? We need to hire a team. We went and raised more money. So just before we went on the on the den, we agreed a deal with our investor, our big angel, to put in some more money. And we agreed the valuation and said, no matter what happens on the show, we're going to agree this and you're going to invest at this amount. Basically hedged ourselves. Mm-hmm. We lost the hedge, but we got the good result mm-hmm. because if we'd waited until after, we, we you know could have got better valuation. However, we then went and raised another 185000 from some other angels to see us through the show to hire the team we needed. And we were making about £1,000 a month um, before going on the den, which is obviously nothing. And then the first month after, we went up 12x to like £12,000 the, fir- the first month. So we were like, this is, this is amazing. It just shows you what some scale can do. Yeah. and effectively from there we had an amazing six months but and the black friday everything was amazing but we came into january not having raised enough in the summer before the den not really uh knowing how to acquire users properly because we just like we've just been on a tv show we still hadn't run those experiments to learn how to get users through various channels all these other things so we were like okay we need to we need to really learn how we've got traffic and users now let's learn how this business works. Let's make sure we and measure everything. Traffic, traffic and users, did that come primarily just from the PR? So people just heard about you through Dragon's Den and they came to your website, downloaded the extension? Or, or is, that, is there anything more that you know happened around that? So on the night, I think we went from 3,000 users to maybe 45,000 users. Wow. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it was incredible. You just can't buy that level of PR like separately or, or advertising. And then we used, like, as seen on Dragon's Den to run Facebook ads. This is in the glory day still, 2017, getting, like, one or two pound installs, but we weren't spending a lot of money. And then we were, um, yeah, we were in a bit more press, but we got a big bump, and then it just died down. And actually, our product had a lot of improvements to make. There was quite a few bugs, so we had quite a high churn rate that we only realized in January when we put in all these tools and measures that we could now afford and, and had data to, to, to use so we kind of ran before we could walk and it hurt us mm-hmm. for sure but you know we dealt the we dealt the hand we were given that is crazy because it, it's so funny you know it, it's those 15 minutes or not even 15 minutes just a few minutes that you get on the tv right but it's literally yeah as you said the whole year before that and after that, the whole year is literally just around Dragon's Den. Yeah, that was our full focus. Everything. Getting on, preparing, doing well, preparing for the TV airing, dealing with the traffic and, and everything that came afterwards. Mm. Right, it's a whole year thing. Um, and yeah, we had a really good September, October, November, December, because we had like maximum users, but also it was the shopping season, the golden quarter. And we didn't realize quite how 
big Q4 was in terms of retail. Mm-hmm. It's like triple, quadruple yeah. the other months. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we thought we're going to keep going up and come, we, we hired some people and come down and Feb, instead of like 20 grand a month we were doing, we went down to like six. Mm-hmm. So, and then we were having user churn. And so actually we got in a bit of a death spiral because we thought we were doing really well. We planned to do well. And then things started reversing. So all of 2017 was Dragon's Den make the most of it. All of 2018 was just trying to survive and figure out what to do with this, what to do with this business. Um, And the error I think I made in hindsight was not believing how big this thing could be. Like, I know it sounds crazy, but unless you read, and nowadays, like, there's so much content like this podcast where people that have never run a business before can hear stories like this and understand, like, how scale can work, like, what lots of traffic can really do, how things can quickly ramp up. I worked in finance before. I had no idea mm. really how the internet worked and how many people are using it and how you can direct that traffic. And the point I make is if I had known how big this thing could have been, I would have raised, or if I knew how to, I would have raised a lot more money just before going on Dragon's Den. We raised uh-huh. 180 because it was like, okay, we should have raised like a million quid. Mm-hmm. Um, and we probably could have. But we just didn't know how. Like, I never raised from VCs before. But come January, we tried to do a funding round. And we were, you know, wanted a much bigger valuation because we were making money and all the rest. And they said, oh, no, Series A numbers, you need a million uh, of revenue. Come back when you're doing 70 grand a month. And we're like, we're just, we're just never going to get there. So we were, like, in this rock and a hard place. We don't have enough money to grow. And if we spend all that money in, like... A couple of months the business may just die so yeah then some very interesting things happened that ended up resulting in our sale that's such a great example of the whole entrepreneurial roller coaster that people often talk about it's like from the <laughs> highest high to the lowest low within a few months right literally uh yeah going from the best possible scenario to then just trying to survive yeah um, i thought in you know, October 17, I was like, I'm going to be a multimillionaire mm, to Feb, yeah. Feb 18 being like, it's all like, it's going to go to crap, like yeah. overnight. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And sometimes that kind of, uh, that contrast happens between the morning and the evening in, in one day, right? Sometimes you wake up and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be the next, uh, the next unicorn. And then by the time you go to bed, you're like, literally everything's crashing down and we're not going to survive. Yeah. And I think that, having had experience quite young, you know, you build a certain amount of resilience, mm. which has served me very well to, to, to today. Yeah. So that, that's actually an interesting question, but may, okay. Maybe we'll get to that uh, towards the end. I'm curious what else. Uh, I, I agree with that statement a lot. And I think that's the kind of resilience that it gives you just, yeah, for life, right? Not, it's not, not just for business. I think it just makes you more resilient, stronger, and it gives you a lot of other, useful skills and traits in life as well but so sure. to finish the story of pouch so then then what happened then you guys sold and, and you said there's there were some reasons right why you went for the sale so um we couldn't raise from vcs we couldn't grow the business so we had to look for like almost a corporate partner that could do something with pouch mm-hmm. and the News UK that own in the, in, in, in the United Kingdom, the Sun, the Times, those, those newspapers, they were looking for uh, startups that could help their users save money but they could, that they could invest in, but they could also grow with their properties. So like, this is perfect for us, right? Like we help people save money. We can get loads of traffic from their website and we can give them a revenue share on every user they give us. Match made in heaven. And we went through this process with them. It's like a three-month process. We kind of put all our eggs in this basket and went through the process, had to do these technical assessments, commercial assessments, meet everyone in the business. I think we met everyone at senior in the business apart from Rupert Murdoch. And they agreed they were going to invest £1 million in the business at a £5 million valuation. But really, like it would have been a quasi-acquisition because after having them on the cap table, no one else was really going to look at you. We were comfortable with it. We were like, they'll buy us at some point. We'll know we'll do well with the money. We'll spend a million quid on other channels, but they'll give us lots of free traffic. So win-win. What happened is these big corporates, they're not set up to make investments. And the reason they aren't is because ultimately, like you've got a VC firm, your job is to invest. 
and you write your investment memos and if it goes wrong, no one's really going to tell you off because everyone has agreed to invest in the business through your process as a VC. With a big corporate, someone on the exec team has to hang their hat on the deal and say, I believe in this. Now, we had spent like maybe max half an hour with each C-suite person. Why would they risk their super cushy job on a very risky investment when they're not seeing any personal upside from it? The company is making it. And so they said, no, we're not doing any investments anymore. So they wasted our time for three months. They wasted their time for three months. Um, it was a nightmare. Like we really thought the business was going to collapse. We had to fire all the staff apart from one. So we went from like nine people to, oh, wow. to six people, actually. The three co-founders, two developers, and one marketing guy. It was so painful. Um, but what happened was News UK put out a press release that they were working with us. And what they wanted to do was build a version of pouch a white labeled version of pouch for the sun the sun savers browser extension uh -huh. <laughs> that's what we were able to do they put out this press release and the daily mail saw it and the daily mail actually have one of the largest voucher code websites in the uk and it's run by a company called global savings group who as their core business run white labeled voucher code websites mm -hmm. global savings group reached out to us said we'd like to speak to you and we said we can't we're in the, like a process with the sun for investment we can't speak to you after the process finished we reached back out and said we can have a conversation and we met them met their ceo and he was like tell us about yourself i was like being transparent we've just had a massive like uh hit we're just trying to figure out like what to do next we've got a great product it's working but we just need to figure out we thought the global savings group wanted to invest in us we were like great um we did like, again, like technical sprints and all the rest. And they said, oh, we want to do a test with you. And we just said like, no, <laughs> we've just done it with the sun. Like we don't have it in us again. We, we, we can't do this. And we went to Munich where the head office is and we met the whole team. Like a, basically it was an investor day. And at the end of the thing, they said, we want to buy you. We don't want to invest in you. We want to acquire the business. They had this very complicated structure with this whole test that I just mentioned. I'm getting the timeline a little confused. Ultimately, um, they said we want to do something simple. And then what they proposed to us was very confusing. And the CEO called me and said, look, like, if you don't want to do this test, we can't move forward. And on the spot, I convinced him that he was looking at this wrong and if they simplify and do the rest, we'll reduce the valuation and they can buy the business for cash. And the number I said on that call was pretty much the number they ended up buying the business at, give or take a, you know, a few, few K. Um, so after we agreed that they would buy us, I think from first meeting to full acquisition took three and a half months, which is very fast. Which is pretty fast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I had a background in corporate finance, so I knew how to drive a process forward. Ah, so that was helpful. <laughs> Very helpful. Didn't have to pay any advisors. I think we spent seven grand on legal fees for the whole deal, and that was it. Which is um, incredible, yeah. Oh, it was great. It was great. And GSG bought the business. Um, we didn't really have any other options. Uh, we could have gone and raised some more money, but I think that in the journey I've given you, it's such a roller coaster. We were exhausted. Like, it'd been mm. two years. We'd never run a business before hiring firing growing failing all these things and i think we were just grateful we had a clean exit now we didn't make mm -hmm. a lot of money it was a seven figure yeah. deal yeah. i made enough to make it commercial like financially worthwhile me leaving a corporate job and doing this let alone mm -hmm. all the experience and the fun and all the rest like made more than i would have in any normal job over those two years um but i was just happy to have a clean exit and we always said to each other it's not about this one it's about the next one and all three of us since, you know, I've got a new business. Ben's got a new business. Vic, Vikram actually stayed at GSG. He's been there almost five years now. He's like their top technical lead. Um, he was a bit older, had a kid. He didn't want to go start something else straight away. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a really happy story. And I think it's like almost a classic founder tale where you've got all these ups and downs. We just got the fairy tale that we got an exit at the end of it rather than a, a failure. Because there's mm -hmm. so many points along the way. Dragon's Den didn't work. Um, you know, even if New 2K had actually decided to invest in us, I think we would have failed eventually because they were such a mess to deal with. 
And then, you know, if I if if the GSG CEO had called Ben or Vic, maybe they wouldn't have given the same response. Maybe mm. we wouldn't have sold the business. It's just crazy when you kind of line it all up and how it works. I love this so much because, as you said, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of a classic story with all the ups and downs, some crazy ups and some crazy downs, and then in the end, yeah, a reasonable success, right? It's, it's not yeah. it's not a hundred million dollar exit, but it's you know you sold the business at profit. That's it's still like ninety nine percent of startups never actually sell, right? Uh, yeah, we beat the stats. Fail, so. We beat the yeah. stats. We, we raised money stats. on our first attempt and we, we sold a business on our first attempt. And I don't know any other founders that have done that. I don't think we did anything necessarily special. Like I can very much point to our point of failures, but we had real grit and determination and we weren't going to like let it go, let it go easily. And again, also in a relatively short period of time, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's two years to a seven figure exit, which is, I think that's, yeah, it's very, that's very, very good. For sure. Um, and it was low seven figures, right? It was just, let's just say just seven figures. <laughs> 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 but uh, TechCrunch but doesn't is. need the exact number. Yeah, exactly. It's the, the the million, the million that everyone talks about, right? It's all about that exactly. reaching that million. That's that's what we all want to want to hear. Exactly. Um, how so what then one year later, honey sells for four billion. How, was yeah. that was Honey? A, you know, was that like when that new story came out? Was Honey a company that you guys followed? Did you, did you kind of learn from them? Was that like, oh my god, we could have done so much better? Or like, how did you feel about that? So, so Honey, so sorry for interrupting, but Honey was essentially the same thing, but in the US, yeah. I think. Yeah. Right? So um, they, by the time we started, they already had about two million users. Mm. So America is a very different market in lots of ways. And the, the channels they had to grow were completely different to, to ours. A lot of the YouTubers they worked with were, you know, they were American users before anything. Reddit was a big channel over there. And yeah, we followed them very closely. Um, look, PayPal overpaid massively, but doesn't matter. They got the exit they needed to at a time when markets were hot. So there they pay. So I know that our lifetime value was like 15 pounds, right? That's what we, that's what we went for. PayPal paid £200 per user, mm-hmm. right? That's what they paid. So do I think Honey were 6x or whatever x um, better at monetization? No, 12x better at monetization than us. No, I don't think they were. Um, so I think PayPal overpaid. However, did they get like a tool and lots of user data and all these other things? Yeah, they did. Do I regret it? No, because we did what we think that was what was right at the time. Um, and I know other browser extension businesses have, law- have like raised a lot more money that are, than us that uh, can't find an exit because everyone's like saturating and got their own. So maybe we, we would have never have sold. What it did do is convince GSG to invest a lot more in the pouch project. So uh-huh. we sold at the start of 19, Honey sold, sold at the end of 2019. And the reason they bought us was to build all these white label browser extensions for daily mail and all the rest, which we did mm-hmm. for the same reason as the sun, they weren't like getting the traffic that we thought they would. And after, um, after honey acquired PayPal, sorry, PayPal acquired honey. It was like, wow, like we made a really good decision buying this business. Let's put more resources into it. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I've gone from, you know, our team of six, we hired a few more people. It was, here's a new budget, multi-million pound budget every year, hire your own team, really let's see how far this thing can go. And so I basically had my Series A experience, but in you know a very safe environment. We scaled the team from six to 30. We 10x the revenue over a um, two-year period. So I was at GSG for three years, 19, 20, 21. 10x the revenue over that period, 10x the user base, and had a fantastic experience. So I wasn't, um, my deal with them, I didn't, have to stay i could have left after like six months maybe less i stayed because i genuinely liked what we were doing and i hadn't had enough of growing pouch but they gave us a really good structure to enable us to do it and incentives to to do it if we if we did well nice Nice. great great so yeah really good story in the end um and then so now you went on to start yaso what is that a year or two years ago am i pronouncing that correctly you are you are pronouncing it correctly so yeah yeah so we started it um in 2022 
but the full the first year was just raising money. That's all we did. So, um, so that's interesting. How do you start something with raising money? I think that might be surprising to a lot of people. I think so. So the the, the idea for Yasso is is not like a an overnight idea. Um, my two co-founders, Adam and James, I met them 10 years ago at a conference. So I actually studied economics and Chinese at university and lived out in China for a while. And I always found it a fascinating place in terms of like the market, the market size, the technology is just crazy. And Adam and James to Chinese at university as well. And they started a marketing agency just focused on helping Western brands market to Chinese consumers. After Pouch got sold, Adam got in touch with me because their agency was under acquisition offer. But they had bootstrapped this business to a few million in revenue, you know, just the two of them, no investors from their bedroom in university. They didn't have a founder network. They were like, I don't know if this is a good deal or not. It wasn't a good deal. <laughs> we advised them not to do it. Um, and they didn't do it, but started looking under the hood of their agency and they had this really interesting e-commerce business or e-commerce product that they had built, bootstrapped from agency cash flows to... to um, might be quite hard to explain, but there's an app in China called WeChat, which is like mm -hmm. WhatsApp on steroids. You can not only message all your friends, you can you know, pay your tax, you can order food. It's like a whole ecosystem. And you can also buy products directly through it. And they had built a, an integration between Magento, which is an e-commerce framework now owned by Adobe, and WeChat. So they could actually set up stores for Western brands on WeChat. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is the future. This is the leverage. This is this is the scale move. And they already had some brands using it. But you can, if we went out and raised money as the agency, VCs would be confused. We're like, we're investing in an agency, but you've got this tech product. What's the valuation? What do we do? Um, so throughout 21, we kind of conceptualized, okay, if this was a standalone e-commerce business, and I did this you know, on evenings and weekends, if it was a standalone e-commerce business, what would this look like? Um, how would it work? What are the tools we'd be using? How much money do we need? And we realized that it wasn't something we could bootstrap. The, it either works or it doesn't. You know, we can either help Western brands sell the products into China directly and have all the right systems and everything in place, or, or we can't. So we knew that we need to raise quite a lot of money as a starting point. Mm -hmm. But we had 10 years of agency data, uh, you know, an MVP that had been sold to brands to back it up. So we went, it was a brand new company with, with, with a brand new idea. And actually, because of how the markets turned, investors discounted a lot of that previous work. They were like, what have you built now? And we knew we had to lay, raise at least 1.2 million pounds to get going. If we didn't raise that, just from like knowing the costs involved, there would be no point. If we raise any less, we're, we're not going to hit our goal. We're just going to waste it. We won't uh, unlock that next level of funding. So that's why we started the business with that, you know, saying we need to raise money because mm -hmm. um, we knew that we had to. There was no bootstrap situation that we could that we could have. So it was just a, a real slog. Yeah. And what was um, so I, I actually had the somewhat similar experience with my previous business, uh, the startups that I started in what was that, six, maybe seven years ago in Switzerland. We also raised without having anything, basically, just a, just a pitch deck and, uh, you know, arguably a good idea and some relevant experience, basically. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's what we pitched with. And I think we had a good fundraising strategy as well, and that helped us raise funding. Um, but I'm curious, it's generally difficult to do that, and, it's, and it got more difficult over the last two or three years, right? So mm -hmm. how did you manage to do it? Obviously, you mentioned before you had to raise, you had to reach out to literally hundreds of investors. Yeah. Um, but what else was important in that process? Just not stopping. <laughs> and, and, and what I said earlier about investors saying no, but really they just don't understand it. We are in our, in our pitch, right? We are having to explain the dynamics of a massive market and how it works. And then we need to explain like, what we're doing is better than what's currently in the market. So it's a massive education piece. And these associates of VC firms like they don't, they don't know anything about Chinese e-commerce. Why would they? It's not necessarily their focus as generalists. It's seen as quite an intimidating market. You need to understand the language and, and, and everything else. Um, and so most people pass because they just like, they said, I don't know anything about this. You know, if it's a B2B mm -hmm. SaaS product, they've got, you know, you've seen the SaaS napkin where you can literally like score a company on metrics and everyone uses the same score. So you mm -hmm. can like rank yourself yeah. almost like a 
percentile wise, you can't do that with something like Chinese e-commerce because no one knows what it is. So we had to spend a lot of time educating people and then a lot of time convincing them that we were right in our like, theory of what we were going to build. There were two, two things that helped a lot, or three. One is the fact I'd exited before and had learned a lot and really scaled out. So there was a level of credibility that got me in through the door and had people listen to me, even if they didn't understand the idea necessarily. And when I say the value of selling pouch, that was the true value. The doors it opened to me when I send someone a TechCrunch article, I'm like, well, this guy's clearly serious. Let's have a conversation. The second thing was um, the data that we had from the previous business. Like the, we launched 120 brands via the agency. We knew all the players. We knew all the, um, the tools. Like we had the tech stack nailed down and we had priced it up saying, this is what we need to build it. It will work. The third thing was we pre-sold the uh, we pre-sold uh, the product. Uh-huh. We didn't actually sign contracts, but we didn't have case studies because it was a the case studies we had on the previous MVP got discounted because it was a different model. So investors mm-hmm. said maybe two years ago we'd count these, but the markets changed. Sorry. So what we had to do was sell to companies before we had a live product, and whilst we didn't um, whilst we didn't sign any contracts because there was no point until the product was live. We had companies that believed and wanted to use our service so much that they would get on calls with investors and tell them why we were solving their problem and why they would work with us down the line. Uh And having that advocacy as a company that doesn't have a product, but you're speaking, you know, got the head of a brand category and a 200 million pound brand saying, I know the problem they're solving. I want to use their solution is super powerful and worth you know, so much in terms of credit in the bank with these investors who just want to see some proof points. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit more? Because I think I've heard of that often, right? Especially with sales, people say, well, if you're solving a big enough problem, you should just be able, you should just go out and pre-sell it. And that's how you kind of fund the development. That was an idea. ten. And um, that sounds really good, but also I think it can be really difficult, right? Because... Mm -hmm. And I think it's it probably got more now than it was maybe some years ago. Um, yeah. So did you guys, again, maybe did you get a lot of rejections or how did you actually approach that? How, how did so that we, we just started reaching out to brands saying, this is what we do. And then when we, you know, we sold it as if it was live. And when they, we got the right people on the phone, we said, look, we're actually fundraising. Like, we want to build this. I know that you know it will solve a certain problem set for you. Will you help us raise the money? Will you be in our due diligence calls with the investors? Some people said no. Other people said yes. You can only, you can, you can only ask. But I think the difference with SaaS products is there's enough tools now where you can get basic feedback and information for, like, very little. Like, it doesn't cost a lot to build an MVP you know, there are tools like Bubble and, you know, all the GPT integrations you can do nowadays. Um, but with ours, it was binary. Either you can, like, take products and get it to China via e-commerce channels or, or you can't. So we really had to pre-sell the vision to people. And, you know, some of those people we spoke to back then are customers today. So it did work, mm-hmm. like, fundamentally, both in the investment and, and, and actually getting them as brands. So in this case, it was really, it was a, clearly a problem and you guys had a unique idea that those brands were like, yeah, we, we do need that and we yeah. we genuinely want to support you in that. Exactly. We, it wasn't um, because the idea had been born out of 10 years of experience and a previous mm-hmm. MVP. We knew very clearly that the problem existed and that you needed a very special set of skills to solve it. So we knew we'd be able to find those brands that could be our advocates for, for the funding round. And they were really important. Like, I don't think we would have raised the round without them. And then you ended up raising two million pounds or so, right? We made, we raised two million pre-seed, so pre-revenue, pre-product, just an idea. We actually got three million of commitments in the end because once we got our lead and Playfair Capital, the floodgates opened. Every conversation is like, ah, yeah, like it's yeah. nice to meet you. We're about to close. You know, if you want to put in, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and squeeze you in. Um, that was the best two weeks ever and everyone bang 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 and i tried to like bottle that confidence for the next round like what's that (laughs) what's that vibe because i could have been lying right i wasn't but what's that vibe that i was giving off that people would yeah yeah. be like when when someone tells you no you want to give them their money even more 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's it's crazy. The, uh, that's the fundraising situation that every founder wants to be in, right? <laughs> when, <laughs> that's Eight, seven months of struggle for two weeks of joy. That's basically <laughs> it. Nice. And so, so how's it going now? So that's been, uh, what has it been, a year or so since you raised? I'm yeah, about sure 13, actually, 14 months, around close November. Um, 14 months. Last year was really hard, I have to say. Uh, I think, you know, we sell to brands um, that want to grow. And when funding dries up and economy in the UK is not looking good, people don't want to commit to big, like, multi-year deals. We signed three-year contracts. Um, and, you know, our business model, we earn a, a revenue share of anything we sell through our, through our solution up to, like, 50%. So it's, like, very high. Um, but we know the value that we bring, so why people sign with us. Um, it took us a long time to get our first brand signed. We had to convince them of the idea. You don't have any case studies. How much is it going to cost me? Why should I trust you? All these things. But now we've got the first few. It's becoming a lot easier. And also, I do think that the market is changing in a way that people are confident and ready to grow again. Interest rates have stopped going up. People think they're going to come down. You know, there are new funding rounds coming out. People are spending again. Um, it's not as much doom and gloom as we had seen previously. What's the long-term goal with Yasio? So we want to be able to help any brand from any place in the world to sell in China using our social commerce solution. So an ideal situation is in five years, we're working with 100 to 200 of top global consumer brands running their China business, doing anywhere from you know, one to four billion of revenue because mm. that's how big the market. That's how big you can grow a business in China because the market is just so big. China's e-commerce market is not just the biggest market in the world; it is bigger than every single other market combined, and it's one oh, single wow. place to be. It's crazy, crazy. The Western news filter on China is not good. Unfairly, I think so, because everyone says our oh, political risk, all these other things. The biggest risk our business has faced so far is SVB collapsing with all our seed money in it, right? <laughs> uh, that's the biggest risk we've had. So yeah. um, I get quite uh, frustrated when people talk about political risk because China's open for business. Like the West just doesn't want to believe it. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a different narrative that we usually hear, right? For sure. Interesting. And that, yeah, I mean, that makes it a massive, massive opportunity that I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this evolves and how it goes. Very, very, very cool. Fantastic. Um, you, so we talked a little bit about resilience before, which obviously, you know, you said you, you build up your resilience throughout the first business. It seems like that's certainly helping you now with the second business, um, mm -hmm. reaching out to all these investors and, you know, just keep to, to keep going. Um, what are some other lessons, maybe either lessons that you're taking from the first business, uh, maybe things that are, you're doing the same because that works so well, or maybe even more importantly, what are you doing differently now? It's a great question. I think I'll start with like what I tell anyone that I advise or, or work with or my founders, whatever it may be. When things are going bad, often you spend a lot of your time thinking about the fact that things are going bad. Mm-hmm. Right, you're just focused on, oh, this has happened, this has happened. I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm an overthinker. The thing I learned is that if you can um, really unemotionally play out your worst case scenario and be okay with that scenario, then you are freed from that scenario and you can just focus on pushing things along. Mm. To give you an example, if Yasso failed, I would have wasted a couple of years. I would have lost some people some money. And I would have to go get a, a normal job. Mm -hmm. Life's very long. You've got to have lots of opportunities. Like It's a lot longer than you think. Everyone that invested understood the risks and trusts us. And I know hand on heart that I will put blood, sweat and tears into trying to make this thing a success. And if it doesn't, it's not through lack of trying. And if I wasn't doing this, I'd be having a normal job anyway. Mm. So whilst I'd be devastated if it failed, I'm not um, held back by that fear. And it lets you just keep going and keep going and keep going because you're not, you're not worried about what if it goes wrong, what if it goes wrong. Um, and I learned that, you know, when we're trying to sell pouch, I was like, well, what's the worst thing that happens here if we don't buy the company, if we don't sell the business? Well, 
we do 15k a month there's three founders we fire everyone we each earn a passive income of five grand a month not bad um going off and, and build our life with a with a great experience and having gone on a tv show okay cool i can deal with that fine now we can just push on um and i think a lot more people need to like think about the worst case scenario get comfortable with it and just and just move on um what have i done differently in this business compared to the last one i understand our systems a lot better like i think we're just a lot more professional in how we act um i'm not that bothered about playing startup founder like we don't really go for drinks in the week i'm you know i'm at events when i need to be to meet people um i post on linkedin because i know it's good for personal brand to, to for investors but like I do podcasts like this because you've had great guests and I uh, respect you, but it's a case of like not really playing that game, like Mm -hmm. not being a entrepreneur, just like we've got an idea, let's focus and execute Mm -hmm. and and block out the distractions. Whereas with Pouch, I think because it was the first time, I think we got a lot more press because it was a B2C startup. It was a consumer business. A lot of people I knew used it. When I went out for drinks, oh, oh, I found the Pouch. Oh, I used that. Oh, amazing. Oh, cool. Like, it was a bit more ego that's been completely removed in, in this one. It's just, we're going to build an amazing business. If I'm known amazing, if I'm not, I don't care. Let's just build, build what we can. Amazing. I have to say, I love how raw and real you are with everything that you're saying. I think it's one of the most just real conversations that I've had in a while. Oh, because, um, yeah, a lot of people just try to paint a nicer picture or uh, they, they kind of, <laughs> try to appear like they're honest but you, you can tell that there's there's more to it but i don't know it's it's you really give me the feeling that you're just you know saying things as, as they are some of them are good some of them are not as good some of them might seem good but actually for yourself when it's actually happening to you you feel like you know it was not as good as it could have been so i for really sure. really appreciate that um i know you need to run to your next meeting so we can wrap up here i will say for everyone who listened until the end I'm on a mission this year to get this podcast to the top 5% of more, the most shared podcast globally. We were in the top 15% a year ago, but I think now we have better guests. I'm hopefully better at asking questions. So if you're listening, uh, do please do help me and either send it to somebody who wants to listen to this kind of conversation or just you know subscribe, like, give the algorithm what it needs. And I'll really, really appreciate that. And then we'll get even more real honest guests like johnny uh on the podcast and yeah thank you so much johnny really appreciate it it was really pleasure and thanks for having me on and i know you're gonna hit your goal you're a great interviewer and yeah really enjoyed our conversation thank you so much take care